Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, we checked out the cult favorite, The Lost Boys, a beloved, kitschy, and weird ode to the 80s vampire obsession. Avram and I are exploring the themes of chosen families, dealing with loss and feeling lost, and wondering why during this era, vampires were such a thing. Here we go. I gotta say, I have not watched this film in a very long time. So uh, welcome everybody to our weekly installment of Pop Parenting with Avram Natigal and myself. Um, today we are digging into um, a movie called The Lost Boys. So as you, if you're watching the Zoom, you can see behind me that I put a little, one of the posters from the actual movie. This is one where like Keanu Reeves was like, before being the president, you know, or like 24. He was just like a kind of a wrecked teenager. So it was one of his crazy roles. Hold on, time out. What are you talking about? Sorry, Who? Keeper Sutherland. Oh yeah, Can I'm I like- say Keanu Reeves? Yeah, I'm like, I didn't know he was in this film. <laughs> okay. He actually could have been in this film. I always feel like Jamie Gertz is a bit of a female like Keanu Reeves in a way. She's always like a bit like, not completely like present. So, you know, I remember his kind of Bill and Ted character. I feel like she plays like the female of that character often. And doesn't her, her role uh, I found in this film was somewhat similar, a, a disposition to less than zero. Totally. Right. Like, lo like lost girl, really, like really lost and not quite lost. And, you know, uh, a, a boy telling her kind of what to do, like in the, in, in a, um, in less than zero, it was the drug pusher. And here right. it was the main, it was, uh, the vampire. Right. Uh, and she's sultry, but she's lost. Right. Like just kind of like, you know, no agency sort of just, you know, floating away with whatever happens to her, but deeply unhappy about it. Yeah, so interesting. I noticed that too. It's funny watching those two movies back to back, um, realizing how similar those characters were. Um, yeah, super interesting. Um, okay, so The Lost Boys, should I give a short on one foot? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, okay, so The Lost Boys was, I think part of like a craze in the 80s with all of these vampire novels and vampire movies and you know, they remade Dracula. That they remade with Keanu Reeves, um, the right. uh, the Dracula remake. Um, Gary Oldman. Was, yeah, Gary that's Oldman right. Was Dracula, yeah, and Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder. The one where they say those film. two actually got married. <laughs> oh. Did you know this? They said no. apparently, like legally, they got married for the movie and didn't realize it till years later. Um, yeah, so Gary Oldman, and then, and there was like the Anne Rice novels that were all coming out that everyone was reading. Hold um, on. The most frightening one in the 80s that came out, it freaked me out, Salem's one? Lot. Oh, yeah. You remember Salem's Lot? 
that van that, what was his name um yeah. oh actually i think his first name might have been because I, they based it that vampire was based off uh, nosferatu i think from right. the 1930s That's I think right. that, that was a um that was a german actor max schrenter or something yeah uh, this the vampire in salem's lot all was very similar in um makeup to uh, to that vampire but you're right the 80s yeah. was just full of vampire movies totally it was it was a total craze and i mean i was in my goth mode for you know part of that so for me i was just totally down with that in fact there's a there's a really great um on tiktok there's a girl who has like she's one of the most popular creators on tiktok and one of the characters she always does is her at age 12 after reading all the twilight books and she keeps telling like her mom's like come in for lunch she's like i don't eat lunch i'm a vampire and she'd like run into the forest and so so i remember like as a teenager you know being fascinated by that kind of romanticism of the you know the the fatale of the immortal dead kind of thing was a whole thing so yeah so this was really in that genre the lost boys it was supposed to be cool and edgy um although when i watch it now i'm like this is like such an odd movie <laughs> there's so many pieces of it where it feels like it's trying to be a teen movie but it's so not hitting the mark like um, when you see the, there's a point in the film where there's like a band playing on the beach and the, the singer looks like a total like white snake kind of guy. <laughs> it's just like so. Now, you, you know, what's funny about that band and it's just a, a side note um, is that first of all, uh, saxophones were big in the eighties. If you remember Bruce, right, Kenny G. Had a, yeah, the, all these bands had saxophones, uh, in them. Uh, and what in lost boys, what they did is they said, you know, it's like, it's like cowbell. It's like, we're going to get, we're not just going to give you saxophone. The lead singer is going to play. <laughs> he's going to play the, with his shirt off, mind you. <laughs> right. Very and, well oiled. <laughs> But you know what? If you listen, I actually like the song. I remember the song. And and by the way, that that motif playing throughout the entire film. Um, what's the song? The show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, who was who is that? By the way, I don't remember. That? I couldn't remember who it was that did that song. And then another great song in the film. Um, I I don't know if it was In Excess, but it was the lead singer from In Excess. Right. Um, Mary, Mary, you're all yeah. now. Just and a great soundtrack. Has, like it has the doors in it, which is so cool. Where? It plays um people are strange. Oh, you're right. You are right. That's right. Yeah, which was like such a throwback. That was really cool. And there's I think that in uh wasn't it in the vampire lair? Isn't there a picture of Jim Morrison in their yeah. lair? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, so the 80s was just filled with these like, you know, obsessions with the the imminently doomed. You know, it was just such a such a whole a, a whole play, I think, against the excess of the times where, you know, the sort of somewhat failure of the 60s erupted in the 80s to like this total sort of nihilism and materialism. And it was so interesting. So so, yeah, looking back on this film was so interesting. So the, the story basically that's taking place is it's a brother, an older brother and a younger brother played by Jason Patrick and Corey Haim is the there's the two Corys in this one right Corey Feldman Corey Haim and their mother and they're moving to Santa Clara which is some sort of you know uh, town in 
California after their mother's divorce and going to live with her sort of weird hippie father who likes to stuff animals after they're done. Um, and the story of that this town as they cross the border into the town on the back of the town sign says world murder capital. And so it's it's categorized as a horror film, interestingly enough. Um, but it's really the story of, you know, one of them becomes a vampire and the other one falls in and tries to solve that problem and um, um, and sort of the intricacies of that. But I thought when I was watching it, you know, one of the core pieces of that movie that made it work was the brother relationship, was the relationship between the older brother and the younger brother, which I thought was so unique. You don't see that type of relationship as much anymore in stories. Did I miss anything in the overview? No, I think you did a, a good job. Uh, I read an article where they were saying that, I forget the director's name, um, Joel something. You know, Joel, Joel Sch Schumacher. The yeah. Schumacher, yeah. Um, and, the, you know, just a, a general take on what was happening in the late 80s at the time when this film came out. Uh, divorce was clearly on the rise. It was starting in the, maybe the late 70s, but definitely the 80s, it, it, it took off. Um, and people were leaving their... Um, homes, I guess, maybe in the 50s and 60s, you would live closer to your family. But in the 80s, people were more displaced for work. I mean, they would go away for work. You, you, you would move from state to state. Uh, and this film, um, I mean, one of my main things, I have four uh, themes I want to touch on today. But one of the big ones is this idea of lost. You know, how many people were lost uh, in this film? And I think that Joel was trying to, uh, in some ways, uh, in this film depict this idea of a lost generation in the late 80s, uh, a lot of excess in the beginning, then the recession hit, divorce was, uh, was on the rise. Uh, and I think that this film sort of depicts a society and you might, some might say decline or lost or whatever the case may be. But um, I think that you could have called this film lost city, lost boy, lost girl. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, everybody seems a little lost in the end. And interestingly enough, I guess the, the character that seems the most lost of all, who's kind of the comic relief of the whole thing, the grandfather, ends up in the end of the movie to be the only one that's actually in the know, you know, which is kind of like this sort of like, you know, Shakespearean twist on the whole thing, like at the very end of the film where he's like, yeah, what I hate most about this town is all the vampires. Um, you know, well, it's, it's interesting because, um, well, you're, you're hitting point number two. One of the things, Ellie, you know, I'm noticing was kind of cool about what, what we've been doing here is that certain themes now are coming up with mm -hmm. each film. In every film, you and I seem to look for a wise elder or the concept of a wise elder. We touch on, uh, sometimes we talk about triangles, all these uh, themes that, that come from the world of family systems theory. Um, and so now I look for it when I watch a film. You know, I try to find those common themes that we've been discussing um, that uh, are indicators of anxiety in parenting or in a family or maturity in a parenting and family. And, and one of the things I saw, I, I don't know, it's interesting to hear um, what you saw, but... Um, you know, this issue of, you know, in every film, there seems to be a wise elder, you know, in Star Wars, it's Yoda, right? Yep. Um, and in this film, I thought it was the grandfather, actually. It's interesting that you saw him as lost, because I saw him as eccentric. Yeah. But one of the things that I, um, I'm just going to, by the way, jump into this point here, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Uh, you know, it, it's an interesting thing, right? <clears throat> um, Diane West, she plays Lucy, the, uh, the mother. That's by her name, yes. 
if you want to see her in an amazing role, probably the best role I've ever seen her in, uh, in Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters. Yeah. Just a great film, but she is, she is the, the, the wacky aunt that we all have. Yeah. You know, um, just a great film. Uh, so she's moving to California, uh, to this um, city, to be uh, to live with her dad. Uh, and what's interesting is as soon as the boys get out of the car into his house, he lays down the rules. If you remember, they walk in and he's like, you can't touch this. This is this and this. And why I thought that was interesting from, you know, the, the, our podcast, um, this webinar, this um, whatever you want to help, whatever we're doing here, is that um, one of the things that I find really uh, is confusing for parents and kids is a wishy-washy um, expectation of house rules um, or what I would call house principles. What are the principles? So what I'll ask a family when they're in my office uh, is, does your child understand what the rule is around whatever the thing is, right? And what the consequences are. And the parents often will say yes. And then I'll bring the kid in and I'll say, okay, if you, you know, smoke marijuana in your house, what are the consequences? And often, Often the kid will, they're not sure, it changes, um, they find it's erratic. Uh, and what's interesting about this guy, this grandfather, is right before any problems start, he's like, these are the rules. And yeah. that's the best way to set up a landscape of consistency is you don't wait for the problem to start. It's at the beginning, you're very clear with what the rules in this houses. Now, what you do out there in, in this movie, for example, the grandfather doesn't say, and when you go to the playground or whatever right. they went to, right. you know, he doesn't try to control the environment outside of his house. But when you step into my house, these are the rules. And you get a sense with him that, and if you don't like them, you're free to leave. Right. And I think it's very, I think it's very powerful. I don't hear that very often, you know, um, with the families I work with. And I have to say, it's a struggle for, for um, us. I mean, we just moved, for example, and it changes the frame. And now we're forced to come up with new rules for a new house and, and a new way that we're living our lives. It's tricky. It's not easy. And this definitely touches on family of origin issues because we generally repeat what we saw growing up everything from how much TV you're comfortable with to, you know, uh, are you a family that is comfortable with giving your children Advil um, or Tylenol or not? Right. Some right. of us grew up in families where, you know, our parents were, you know, adamantly against medication and some of, you know, in our, we grew up in families where it was absolutely acceptable. So I think that, um, that he he really sets the stage of sort of a Yoda-like character, in his, an eccentric character, but Yoda's eccentric, uh, you could say, in Star Wars. Yeah, totally. Um, and the other thing that, that I thought <clears throat> that indicated um, wisdom on behalf of the grandfather, uh, and I think what is carried throughout the film, there's a scene where Michael comes home. I think it was right after he was with Jamie Gertz uh, in the love scene. Uh, and he walks in, he's wearing his sunglasses, and the brother looks at him, and, or the mother where were you? Where were you? And the grandfather walks in, takes one look at him and says, ah, you had a good night, huh? <laughs> yeah. And I think it takes a certain amount of um, 
uh, parental, or in this case, a grandparent parental intuition in terms of what's happening with someone. You have to have a certain amount of uh, lowered anxiety to be able to accurately see the situation. Mm -hmm. Anyways, I just wanted to show, share those two thoughts about um, the grandfather and why I think he sort of carried out and why I think in the end he was the one who ultimately... Uh, by the way, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen The Lost Boys, I'm going to ruin the ending. But if you know anything <laughs> about vampire films, they die. Right. Everyone from Bela Lugosi to Christopher Lee, they all die at the end. Um, and so why he, he kills the main uh, uh, Max, I believe, the main vampire. Right. But, but I'm curious, Ellie, you didn't see that way. You saw him. Um, what did you say about him? You saw the grandfather. He also seems a little like just lost, kind of doesn't have it together. He's a little out there. He's kind of like, you know, he gets in the car, starts it up, stops it, gets out. He's like, that's it. I mean, we're going to, you know, like that's about as much as, you know, so he just is, is a little, he seems quite scattered. Um, but it's interesting to hear your take because in the, in the places where it matters the most, you're right, like there's structure, like the rules are here and this is what's to be followed. Even if the rules are a little like seemingly like, you know, not a big deal. Like you can't eat my Oreos. You can't have what's on the second shelf of the freezer. Um, you know, he's not saying you have to do your homework and be home at a certain time. And, you know, all these things we associate with house rules, but his rules are clear nonetheless. Um, but he definitely gives off that sort of scatterbrain sort of look, right? Like right up until the very end where you realize actually he knows what's going on the whole time. And then it fits with his character because he's like, you can't quite figure him out. Um, but, you know, he does provide his daughter <clears throat> with um, a foundation and a home. She doesn't have work. She's recently right. divorced and she has a place to go that's family, that's rock yeah. solid. Um, and even with his eccentricities, you know, she gets there and he's lying on the floor. She thinks he's dead. And he wakes up. Ah, I got you. He's a funny guy. <laughs> he's got an eccentric sense of humor. Right. Um, that she she intuitively knew that as my life is unraveling, I have a place to go. And this is really where mm. we talk about um, the healing power of family and where the government can never replace, therapy can never replace, you know, uh, these things that when we have family and when we have wise elders in our family, it calms the seas when things become very rocky. And I think this film depicts that well with all the accent, eccentricities. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so true. So interesting. And I love that, you know, all of the characters are a little bit eccentric in this film. You know, it, it's just a quirky kind of wacky sort of film. So it, it fits. It fits with the whole model. Um, although I have to say, like, I, you know, I really saw the difference in terms of that 80s, like 80s parenting compared to now, you know, like she kind of drops them in a new town and goes off to try to find a job and starts dating like right after her divorce. And she's like, yeah, I won't be home. I'm going out for dinner. You know, like there's a lot of space there for those guys. Like they just spend every night at this carnival or, you know, whatever it is that's happening on the boardwalk all the time. Like it was a very hands-off type of parenting, especially after a divorce and moving them to a new town. There was no like, oh, are you okay? Can I help you? Like, it was a very um, interesting dynamic to watch between the mom and her sons where there was no helicoptering there so much. And you know what's fascinating, Ellie, about this? I, I find this fascinating. Uh, if you, um, 
maybe I'm divulging too much of my own personal quirks, but um, if you follow the history of serial killers, the height of serial killers, it was the 80s. Uh, it was the late 70s and 80s where if you watch any of the Netflix specials about uh, serial killers, yeah. it's all the early 80s, mid 80s. I mean, things were out of control. Like late, it, Charles Manson was late 70s, but in the early, early mid 80s, right. things were out of control with serial killers. Um, and if you watch those specials, you'll see it's, it's all taking place in the 80s somewhere. The amount, I don't know what's going on now in 2020, but the idea of a serial killer in 2020 is so rare that when it happens, it's at a, such a small scale and makes such big news. But if you actually, if you Google right now, serial killer and anywhere right now in, in uh, North America anyways, I can't even think of a name. Can you think of one name right now that you're, you're worried about right now that you've heard about in the past year or two, of a serial killer that currently exists that's running around uh, uh, where the public is you know, not leaving their home? No, certainly not in that capacity. I mean, I know in the in the village in Toronto a couple of years ago, there was a guy who was um, who was they they discovered later. You know, it wasn't even didn't even really seem in the midst of it. Although people who lived in the village knew there was some people were disappearing. Um, so I mean, that's but like you said, that is so unusual. It was huge news. It was international news um, at one point. So. Um, it's definitely not what I remember in the 80s to be like, you know, every every couple months or so you heard about some horrific like serial killer that was out there. So it was very scary. Right. And so it really comes down to this idea, you know, of parenting trends and anxiety, because uh, if if facts mean anything, right. Um, how come parents are more anxious than ever before? By the way, we know this. This is a fact that we, we right. you and I have talked about this before. Um, uh, school therapists, social workers who are working at university, anxiety is off the charts. And it has something to do with parents uh, micromanaging their kids out of love, by the way. This isn't because they're mean. Uh, and the kids get to university and they don't know how to regulate their own emotions. Right. Now, I don't know what was happening in the mid 80s. I was in high school. I, I don't know what was happening on campus. Although when I was on campus, I, I went to university in I went to I was in Dawson and CJP in uh, 85. So I was in university late 80s, early 90s. I do not recall any of my friends, and I maybe they didn't share it with me. None of us were taking Ativan or, or, or any benzodiazepine to regulate our anxiety. None of us were in therapy. None of us were doing CBT or mind over mood or mindfulness. I mean, no, I, I mean, truthfully, though, like everyone was drinking. <laughs> like that was that was about as much self-medicating, like coping skill management that, you know, that I saw in the late 80s and early 90s. Like. But I, but Ellie, hold on. I mean, I, I, you know, I was involved with the bar scene for many, many years, but right. it was, it was uh, a post-adolescent yeah. sexual, uh, you know, get out of, the, I don't remember any of us going to drink at Peel Pub in Montreal and saying, whew, my panic attack is really acting right. up. I got, I got to get a pitcher of beer. No, there was no therapeutic vocabulary for whatever breakdown you were having in the moment. It was definitely not categorized like that. But I also remember like, you know, um, Matea Winter uh, came and spoke for me once and she talked about the actual statistics of kidnapping, of accidents, of kids crossing the street and something happening to them. Like she was talking about allowing kids to have risky play 
and that the, the level of anxiety that parents have that, oh, if I let my kid walk by themselves to the school, they're gonna be kidnapped. Um, in comparison to the likelihood of that actually happening is so far apart. And when she really broke down the statistics for the parents that are in the room, they were in total shock. It was so, uh, the reality of the chances of those things happen was so out of whack with their perception of the world and the way that they were making choices for their kids, it, it was mind blowing. It was really interesting to see people's faces. So the yeah, and, and I mean, that's why uh, I think that we like to think that our parenting choices are made on facts, but really fe feelings drive right. so much of, um, you know, how we parent. Uh, okay, so I want to just come back to the main theme of this film, uh, which is Lost. And here's a couple of uh, motifs of Lost that I saw, and, and maybe we can riff on this for a little bit. Um, so first of all, it's, it's quite clear that uh, the adults in the film are all searching for a mate or, or, so, or someone to complete them. And the Jerry Maguire idea of to complete them. Yeah. Uh, Ma Max wants a mother for his vampire boys. He says that at the end, that he thought this would just be one, you know, your boys and my boys, right? <laughs> we'll just be one big blood-sucking family. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, he says it. He says blood-sucking Brady Bunch. Right. I mean, he, he says it out loud, right? Um, uh, who else is lost? Michael and Sam don't have a father. We don't know where their father is. We know that mom divorced dad, but there's no mention of father. There's no phone call to father. When they're in a jam, they don't call their father, right. which is somewhat prototypical of 80s divorce when you think about it, that they're, you know, that the kids went with mom and dad was off doing whatever. And, um, and I think that, we, you know, you and I have touched upon this, but uh, Robert Bly, who wrote Iron John, came about, I think it was the late 80s, um, as a response to what he was very worried about, young men um, looking for surrogate father figures and politicians and rock stars in this and just being hopelessly lost, yeah. you know, people in their 50s and 60s. Um, and so uh, I would say that Michael and Sam are quite, they have each other as siblings, but they seem um, a bit lost. Mm -hmm. um, Lucy doesn't have a partner. She doesn't have a job. Uh, she doesn't have money. And um, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, you, you hear her say about her date with Max. What did she say to her kid? You know, I finally found someone. I just want to go on one bloody date, something like right. that, right? She right. just wants a partner. She wants to meet someone. And by the way, for anyone listening to this who thinks, you know, she doesn't need a man or she, you know, everybody has to get out of everybody's face. You know, <laughs> if I want something, if I need something, right? Just leave me alone. Thank you very much. You know, she wants Max. You know, right, she wants her. to go out for dinner. She wants to go on a date. She That's right. She wants to have a good time. Exactly. Right. And finally, and Ellie, I don't know what you thought about this. I was thinking about this last night. There's one other play, uh, um, uh, theme of Lost, and that's the city. Because everybody's worried about death and vampires. Wherever you go, I mean, on the billboard, it says murder, right. murder capital of the world, I think. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems like, you know, people are strange. Everybody seems a bit lost, a bit you know, out there, and everybody's worried about a vampire, you know, biting your neck, right? So the right. entire city seems lost. And that, to me, touches on something we've talked about, Marie Bowen's idea of society in regression, societal regression. Mm -hmm. When anxiety goes up, people are more lost, people are more anxious. So right throughout the film, everybody seems um, uh, like they're wandering. Yeah, and like, and just they're untethered. Fear. There's just this whole feeling in general of just not being 
quite grounded or connected to any purpose in some way. Hold on, I can't hear you right now for some reason. I'm back. Oh, Sorry. I have a little button here oh. I'm using mute <laughs> and uh, it prevents any coughing or, you know, it's great. It's great when it works, but if I forget to press it, uh, remind me. Okay, so I, I don't know if I'm supposed to, you know, resolve the tension of loss, then I apologize if people haven't seen the film, but I'm going to now. So warning, if you don't want the tension resolved, um, uh, turn off. They, if they haven't seen it by now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let, let's go through some of the, um, the ways that this gets resolved. Uh, so first of all, uh, Michael, you know, Michael does find his blood family again. Now, it's interesting, by the way, I don't know if Joel, whatever his name is, thought of this, but, you know, Michael leaves his blood family. Right and chooses a family that sucks blood. Right. Now, I just thought that was interesting, yeah. right? Because he gets he gets brought in by the gang, you know, and they suck blood and they become his family in a way, right? And you can see, because his brother, played by Corey uh, Haim, right? It's, it, you can see he's losing his older brother and it makes him anxious, interesting. right? And it gets resolved because he finds his family again at the end of the film. He finds right. his mother again, he finds his way back uh, to his family. You know, I've always thought of my work when, when uh, this doesn't often happen in, in my work. I wish it did more. When I hear a cutoff in a family, now I know I'm supposed to be neutral. I'm a therapist. I shouldn't hope for anything. And I shouldn't. But I would be a liar if I would say that when two, after working with me, if a sibling reconnects with a sibling after 20 years, if I don't feel pretty good about the work that I've done, or if a father and a son um, you know, they reconnect after three years of working with me in some way where, you know, um, there've been fathers and sons who've been disconnected for generations. I feel very good about that. Right. And so I think the film, you know, um, resolves itself in a way, kind of like Goodwill Hunting, where it's the way things are supposed to be. You're supposed to return to your family, yeah. in a sense, you know, the rootedness of family. Um, now here's, I don't know what you think about this, Ellie, but the vampires, right? you know, vampires are dead. They're the undead. And they're, they're in a way, it's exciting. You know, they'll say, you know, we, we can roam the earth dead, but we need blood to, to live, but we're alive forever. Now, I don't know about you, but when I close my eyes and I think of forever, I get anxious. <laughs> like if you said to me, you have a choice between, well, it's a, it's a, it's a I, I don't know. We, I don't know if we want to go down that rabbit hole, but I mean, the idea that you can live forever, I mean, forever, and you can't do anything about it, but you will be alive forever. Right. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, maybe it depends what age, you know, maybe well, I could I be 22. I think that played a big part in it. The, a big part of the um, obsession with vampires in the 80s was also the outcome of the obsession with youth that came from the 60s and 70s. It was this, it was forever young, as the song goes, right? So this idea that you could be forever young, that you'd never have to get old, you'd never have to be mature, take care of anything or anybody but yourself. Like, you know, that was part of the liberation movement, it was part of the independent uh, uh, you know, the wealth that people were accruing, you know, that kind of freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. I think it was very much part of the zeitgeist of that time of freedom looks like this. Freedom looks like freedom from age, freedom from responsibility, 
you know, you're only tied by whatever blood family you're a part of, right? You know, I think it was an, it was a really, when you think about it in the context of the times, it was so much the escapist realm um, from having to actually do anything purposeful with your life. And yet there was the AIDS crisis that was happening at the time and people were afraid of dying. I mean, you know, when, you know, you and I, um, you and I would remember that time period. It, okay. There's something about COVID that has some things. I haven't felt something like this since the AIDS crisis back in the 80s, where people were, were you know, there was something in the air about there's this invisible thing that can kill you if you're not careful. Yep. Um, and so, uh, and so, you know, this idea, this fascination with the undead that nothing can harm you. Mm-hmm. Now, on the other hand, there is something uh, it's more than tragic. It's something that gets you anxious about, like, you can't, you'll be here forever right. roaming the earth. And so there is a resolution to that because they die. The vampires die and they're brought back to their natural state. Mm-hmm. We're born, we die. Um, there's, by the way, uh, there is a song in a video that I don't know, it, you, you have to have a heart of stone if, um, if you don't cry. I'm going to send the link to you. It's by um, Iron and Wine. Iron and Wine. Do you know the, oh, yeah. that acoustic performer, Iron and Wine? Yeah, yeah. Um, about, um, he's talking about a relationship and how, you know, we were born naked and alone and we will die naked and alone. I'll bury you in the backyard. Oh my God, it's, a, it's such a beautiful song. Anyways, but that idea that there's a, a cyclical part of life and that that's just the way it is, but vampires break that cycle. And the resolution of course here is that at the end, the vampires are dead and everyone's reunited. And so there's a resolution to lost. And I think that by the time the film ends, people aren't as lost. And then you can even say that the city isn't as lost because with the vampires gone, there isn't this overwhelming threat of encountering a vampire uh, in your city. Um, so someone's gonna have to change the billboard uh, perhaps uh, at some point. Uh, any thoughts, uh, Ellie, about um, the idea of uh, lost and now no longer lost? Yeah, I think it, you know you definitely see that in the first scene where it's at the carnival and Kiefer Sutherland is walking with his kind of crew you know, and they encounter this other crew and they kind of get in a scuffle. And and really the only people that you see in scenes in this movie, other than the main characters, are kind of these like rough rock and roll people, you know, that are, you know, sitting in a car, reading a comic book, just acting kind of just like, almost like animals. Like they don't even have dialogue. It's just like grunts and giggles. So it, it's kind of like a weird idea that this town is is you know like you said it's just in this constant state of unrest there's nothing going on there that feels meaningful and purposeful other than hunting vampires <laughs> like right. it, gives, it gives you know the two boys the frog brothers they're like the most serious purposeful people you meet in this whole movie because they've clearly figured out what's going on here and their whole life just has purpose. They've researched, they've prepared, they're like ready to go. And it seems like this like silly childish game, but honestly, like they're the, they're the also the only ones that actually know what's going on and have some level of preparedness to sort of deal with the situation. Um, so yeah, I think everyone and but of course with the with the Frog Brothers also, you never hear from their parents. They just sort of seem to be off running their own lives in whatever way they want. Nobody seems particularly tethered to 
a job or a responsibility to another person other than you know the the two main characters of of michael and his brother yeah i, I mean i think I, it, you have to see you know hollywood um and the films that were coming out uh in the 80s for sure as a uh a rejection of the beaver cleaver you know, thing that was happening in the 50s where right. mother and father knew best, yep. you know, and you young people, you young people. Uh, and I think that um, the uh, comedic, uh, you know, attribution to fatherhood you see in The Simpsons and everything, you know, all fathers are idiots, you know, all mothers are neurotic, kind of crazy lunatics and and that the kids are all wise. And you see it still today, by the way, this hasn't ended. 100%. If, if anything, know. it's it's just permeated into the norm. Like if you saw a sitcom where the parents were somewhat wise, it would be a surprise at this point. Right, uh, and, and so I, I think that, um, but on the other hand, I do have to say though, uh, you know, when I get a chance, and I don't always get a chance to do this, but when I'm working with um, a family and they're struggling with their teenager, what I'll often ask the parents to do is to bring in another sibling, not the focus child, not the child who has the problem, but to bring in someone else. And so uh, the, so what I do is I structure the session where the parents cannot say anything for the first two thirds of the session. And I bring in uh, the brother or sister who is not focused on. And I ask them questions like, what's working in the family? What's not working in the family? Who are you most worried about? Not always, but often they will say something and I'll see the parents reaction go like, huh, Yeah. I had no idea that, you know, that either they saw the problem this way or they have a different take on the problem. And so there is a certain amount of wisdom that kids absorb at home. And if you can dial down the anxiety, then they, they really can help the, the elders and the adults in a family get clear on what exactly is going on here uh, in this family. It's a very powerful um, part of family therapy when it works. Uh, Ellie, I want to just um, move into something else we've talked about here, uh, and we can riff on this a bit. You know, this idea we've talked about before, the tension of the life forces of togetherness. So the need to have community, the right. need to have religion, um, specifically communal religion, um, the need to be with people and conform versus differentiation or individuation, the need to be my own person with my own thoughts and my own feelings. And I think in this film, I think they, you know, they do a great job at depicting the struggle of adolescence. How do you, how are you your own person? And, 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 and you do that, you don't get too caught up in the group. And um, of course, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, what are the elements that override Michael's ability to be his own self? Because he, you know, at the beginning of the film, he does seem like he's his own person, right? He rides his motorcycle behind the family car. Um, he, he's the older brother. He, he really does seem to be his own person. And then he sees Jamie Gertz. I forget, what's her, what's the name? Star. Star. Exactly, Star. Um, and um, I wonder if, I wonder if Joel was riffing on uh, Zappa's daughter, Moon Moon Zappa. Remember that like he had a daughter, Moon Zappa. Yeah, that's right. And he called her Star. Anyways, um, so yeah, so Star. And uh, as soon as his loins get caught up with Jamie Gertz, his individuality seems to go out the window, yeah. and he gets sucked into the peer pressure of that gang. Right, Michael. Michael, right. my, and he right. drinks the blood and then he eats the rice with the, right. the maggots. Like he right. seems to get caught up in it. And how many teenagers can relate to that? 
Well, not right? only that, it seems like, you know, his mother's desire also clouds her judgment in a certain way. Like she wants to just go out to dinner with this guy who, you know, there's already clearly red flags there, you know, like she shows up at his house and his dog tries to kill her. Like, so she also is sort of being led down this merry path, you know, they're in, in ways their experiences mirror each other. It's really only the younger brother that isn't pulled in this, in the same way. You're right, actually. That that's a good point. They they both are. They both sort of abandon a certain amount of responsibility for self to be to be because they're lonely or because they want to connect. It's it's actually it's it's very inter it's very interesting. Um, I might have shared this with you uh, before, Ellie, but I just I think it's worth repeating. I heard a rabbi speak in Vancouver. He, we were all single, and he was talking about why you shouldn't be physically intimate when you're dating. You know why you should wait. And, and, you know, whatever, we're not listening to him because, yeah, yeah, you're a rabbi. We get it. You know, of course, you, you know, you, you wouldn't want to, you know, uh, have sex before you're married. But then as he's talking about um, dating, he comes over. So he leaves the, the dais or the podium and he walks over. It wasn't me. It was someone else in the crowd. It was a guy. And he takes the rabbi takes his hand and he puts it on the other guy's hand. And he just keeps talking about his lecture but he's holding the guy he's he's holding the guy's hand and everybody's very like what the hell is going on here and then he stops his talk and he he turns to the guy i don't know who this guy was and he goes what did i just say tell me what i just said and the guy was like i i have you know as soon as you touched my hand i just completely zoned out he was embarrassed he was you know why is the rabbi holding my hand why is he touching my hand and his message, and it really hit home for me, it really made sense, is that as soon as you touch someone, even not, not in the context of an embarrassment of a rabbi and a guy, but as soon as you touch someone, your brain goes somewhere else. Doesn't mean it's a bad thing, right. but your sense of judgment of character goes somewhere else. Now, in the case of this talk, of course, it went to embarrassment. But in the case of dating, it goes towards um, sexual attraction. And that shuts off a discerning part of our brains for right. picking a partner. Uh, and uh, Dr. Roberta Gilbert has this line that, you know, um, if when people are when young people are dating, if they could spend a little bit more time fostering the friendship and a little, little bit less time worrying about, you know, are we compatible in bed? They'll have a much better uh, marriage in the future. And I got to say, Ellie, it's interesting. I've seen this in my practice. Couples have come and seen me there, let's say four or five years into it. It's not, a, you know, it's a young marriage. Um, and uh, they'll say, you know, when we first met, you know, our, our sexual relationship was off the charts. And, and that's one of the reasons why I picked this person as my mate um and uh, and now they're having these problems um and uh they never saw it coming and they never saw it coming because they got so caught up in the physical part right. of their relationship that they really didn't understand they didn't have to take time for the character stuff to reveal itself so well, i, I think why, i don't know if you ever saw the netflix show love is blind did you no. ever hear about oh my gosh no. was, when it came out it was blowing people's minds because they have like all these guys and all these girls that move into this house and they're not allowed to see each other or touch each other. They can only talk through a wall, but all of them go into the house with the agreement that they're looking for their marriage partner. Like it's not just to date, they're going in there to find their husband and their wife. So the interesting thing was people were freaking out. How could they do that? They've never even seen the person. They've never touched them. How could they even propose? But the beauty of 
like the types of conversations that they then had with each other to try to get to know the other person. Like, of course, there's kind of this flirting, but it was it was more like, who are you? What are what are you really about? And the, the types of discernments and choices that they made, I'm willing to bet are never things they would have paid attention to had they been sitting right in front of the person and being distracted by what the person looked like or being distracted by the possibility of just <coughs> having fun with this person. It's really interesting. It's, it's, it, that's, that's fascinating, actually. Uh, what's it called again? It's called Love is Blind. It's on Netflix. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> well, it's interesting uh, when young couples come to my practice, they'll say something to me like, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure if I want kids she wants kids that we can figure out down the road, but we really got to get the kissing thing. I really got to make sure we're compatible with our kissing <laughs> I think to myself, you know, the sexual technique, you can, you can tweak that. You can learn, you can grow, but philosophically, if you want kids and she doesn't want kids, that ain't going to change all that much. Right. Um, right. You know, if you are adamantly opposed to kids and your partner wants kids um, anyways. So I, I saw that, um, that tension again, we've talked about this before between togetherness and actually, you know, now that we think about it, even if I think about the grandfather, where did he used to just take off to the widow Johnson's house? He also was in this whole thing where like, you know, the, the way they got him out of the house was to say, oh, the widow Johnson called for you. And then he jumps in his car and takes off, even though everything seems totally insane that's going on, right? So in a way you're kind of seeing that generational pull towards like not really paying attention to what should be paid attention to for the possibility of romance. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting that we see all three generations doing that. I miss that. I, I don't know. Maybe I, I was uh, fast forwarding uh, certain clips, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't know he had a love interest in the. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, in fact, one of the good jokes at the very beginning is when he, uh, just after um, Jason Patrick's character becomes a vampire, he sees his grandfather in the hallway and he's like, he's, uh, Jason Patrick is very like, oh, suddenly he has this gravelly vampire voice, right? And the grandfather is about to go and see the widow Johnson. And he's like, ooh, I'm bringing her a, uh, you know, a gift that I just made for her. And he says to him like, oh, well, who did you stuff for her this time? Mr. Johnson? <laughs> like this, this really dark joke. And his brother's like, oh, horrified. But yeah, it's kind of like a running thing. And that's how they get him out of the house is to go see the, the widow. So it's interesting when you see all three of them have that in them. Uh, you know, Ellie, I want to, I'm just going to, my last point here is something you brought up right away. And it's something I noticed as well. And you don't see this in movies is how the siblings look out for each other. Yeah. You just don't see that very often um, in film. In fact, uh, most films, um, they, they pit sibling against sibling. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that, uh, you know, in previous conversations we talk about, or I've talked about, uh, and this will bias on my part, uh, togetherness as almost um, something to critique. Uh, but here's an example where Dr. Bowen would say, togetherness isn't bad and individuation or differentiation isn't good. There are two life forces and we need both. The baby needs the, 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 baby needs the, the togetherness force to orient itself towards the breast and the mother needs the, the, the togetherness force that if she's too tired to feed the baby, she still does. So it's very important to have that sort of um, you can call it an instinctual drive or whatever, but the togetherness force. Well, here's an example where the togetherness force is very 
powerful and nurturing where two siblings are in a strange city, their parents just got divorced and they have each other and they have each other's back and they have each other's back even when real crisis hits of vampires and, uh, and all this sort of a thing. So I just wanted to, you know, just uh, point out here that in previous episodes, we've talked about, you know, the, the importance of uh, developing a sense of your own self so that you can come into relationship and outside of relationship um, in a healthier way. And I still do think we are more oriented towards togetherness generally. I think that, you know, that's just generally our society, you know, hugs and kisses and community and family, and we're less oriented towards differentiation. Mm. In this movie, um, I think that uh, it does show a um, the power of togetherness and how it can regulate anxiety and bring meaning into our lives um, and calm those seas. So and it's yeah, a great film. The, I really like the yeah, film. One of the most powerful parts is when when um, Jason Patrick's character, Michael, when he wakes up and he's floating on the ceiling um, and he somehow manages to get himself out the window and his younger brother's looking out the window and he sees his brother floating in the air outside of his window and he's freaking out. But the way that Michael finally gets him to pay attention is, is he says like, I'm not like, don't be scared. I need you, please help me. Because his brother's like, oh my God, my brother's a monster and running away. But he finally hears the heart of his brother saying, please help me, like, I need you, please help me. And then he opens the window and lets him in, you know, overcoming his fear of being eaten by a vampire. So I think it's really interesting that, that heartfelt call between the two of them um, as brothers was such a, um, it really was the, the essence of their relationship in there that, you know, if you think about when you have siblings say that have addiction, you know, and, and they can seem like a monster sometimes, or when, when you have a sibling who has mental health issues, um, you know, and they can seem like a, it can be very difficult. You know, my younger sister um, struggled with bipolar for a long time. And there were times where it was very difficult, but you know, she called and she needed something, regardless of whatever was going to come out of their mouths. Like, you know, that you can't, if you're connected as a sibling, you can't refuse that heartfelt call for help. Um, and I just thought that was really beautiful when you saw that between the two of them. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I, I'm so tempted to go, uh, you've opened up something, but I think we should save that because I think your story, and uh, I have a lot of questions for you. So maybe we can put that for another episode where it's more focused on siblings, because I'd be very curious to hear some of the lessons you learned uh, with your sister. Um, so I'm going to earmark that and make a note of that for myself. <laughs> okay. um, uh, so Ellie, do I have no more notes? I, that's it. My, that's all I got with with the Lost Boys. Um, yeah, it was like really, it was pulling straws a bit, but I think we dug a, dug some good stuff out of it. Um, I, I look, I think it was a good movie to look at because of the times, you know, I think, again, addressing some of those issues and, and looking at the fallout today of that still that worship of youth, and you know, that we haven't quite gotten over that yet, um, and moved into looking for wise elders. So um, I think it was an, an interesting film and clearly something that resonated with people because I can't believe how many people responded when we said we were doing this movie, like how many people were like, oh my gosh, I was obsessed with that movie. Like really a, a huge response from people. So clearly struck a chord on many levels with people. Um, so yeah. yeah. 
And I got to tell you, it's, it's so much fun for me uh, when people suggest movies. So could we do that again? Could you put out a call for yep. a movie? And even if I didn't see it, I'll rent it. We'll watch it. Yeah. We'll deconstruct it and try to find those parenting gems and family uh, lessons in the film. So if you can do that, let's not even throw out a film yet. Um, okay, cool. I'd be curious to hear what other people want. Awesome. All right. I okay. Like okay. Amazing. Um, thank you so much. Have a great week. I'll see you next week. You too, Ellie. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.